All right. All right, all right. Settle down. You'll all have a chance to do that. Save it for the, uh, the church potluck. Uh, you should all plan on staying and, com- and finishing every one of those conversations. 11 o'clock, church potluck. Mark, it's good to see you. It's good to have you back, man. I know it's been a while. Oh, yes, I know. Uh, anyway, Brian is off on vacation, and uh, he needs one of those you know, every two or three years. And uh, so I'm preaching today, and I want to talk about communion. We're going to take communion today, but there are some really interesting things about communion that I think we could all benefit from. And uh, so if you would join me in your Bibles, I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, this passage starts in verse 23. Verse 23, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So here at Dillon Community Church, we celebrate communion once a month. We celebrate it on the first Sunday of every month. And uh, even when we're out in the amphitheater season, we still have communion right here. And uh, that's different than some churches. Some churches don't celebrate communion. Some churches celebrate communion every week. Uh, Some churches use wafers, some churches use bread, some churches use pita bread, Uh, some use grape juice, some use wine, some use cran grape juice, which the secret in ministry is. The cran grape juice has a little bitterness to the cranberry. It actually tastes like wine without being alcohol. Sorry. Um, There are those secrets, these things that we care about, yes. Um, But anyway, regardless of how communion is celebrated... When we look at the command, when we look at this Last Supper, why did Jesus choose bread and wine? I mean, why not carrots and cheese or, uh, oh, I don't know, water and um, a salad? Uh, I have to imagine all the things, the bitter herbs, I guess, that would have been part of that Passover ceremony. Why did he choose wine and bread? The Bible is full of symbols And these symbols are really, really important. So what I want to do today is look at the bread and the wine. So we're going to start with bread. Jesus took this loaf of bread and broke it as part of the Passover meal. Well, bread. What is bread? What does bread symbolize? Before we get into this, I just want to talk about a couple of things. The first is that there are four levels to understanding anything, really. Um, This actually starts way back with the ancients. Uh, The four levels are the literal level, the metaphoric or poetic level, the political ethical level, or the mystical or anagogical level. So in order to get down to these other levels in the symbols, we need to start with the literal level. And uh, the other side of that, bread, there's a principle called the epoxy principle. How many of you know what epoxy is? Guys have the set of epoxy in a toolbox somewhere, right? Epoxy is two substances that when separate, don't really do too much. 
But when you cut the end off that tube and you squeeze them and they mix together, those two substances that on their own weren't much, together are amazing as an adhesive. And bread kind of fills out this epoxy principle. And we'll see that. So you've got these four levels and you've got the epoxy principle. Now, bread. In the earliest societies, bread was considered magic. Earliest societies literally looked at bread as something magical because there were these ingredients, these inert ingredients like water and flour and salt and sugar, that when you mix them in the right proportions, when you do them, when when you manipulate them in the right way, out comes this delicious, nutritious thing, commonly called in ancient cultures the staff of life. Literally supported entire civilizations. And this is where it gets interesting for us. And I think is why Jesus chose that as a symbol. So before we get too far, I want to go all the way back up to this literal level. And we're going to talk about the 12 steps of baking. Do we have bakers? People that love to bake. Come on, raise them high. Love to bake. Yes. Any of you can feel free to drop off any of your concoctions to my office. Just kidding. Uh, Along with a cup of Starbucks, if you love me. So, um, as you will know, any pastry chefs, like professional bakers, okay? Um, I saw you moving there. That's not a scratch of the arm. That was your professional baker. I'm going to count that. All right, there you go. Uh, So there are 12 steps to baking. And really quickly, these 12 steps are, the first is a French phrase, mise en place. Simply put, get organized. Everything in its place. Uh, Recipes are reviewed. Ingredients are measured out. Uh, Equipment, spatulas, blenders are prepared for use. Ovens are preheated. Mise en place. Get organized. Two, mix. Combine your ingredients. In the second stage, mixing. Again, this is part of this epoxy principle. Bread is not there yet. If we were going to make bread in the second stage, we would have just put these things together. The water, the flour, the sugar, the salt... They're in this mixture called clay, and we'll come back to that one. Now, there is no gluten, which is this incredible protein in that clay. There's just the potential for gluten. There are these two other proteins, glutenin and gliadin, the epoxy principle, that are separate right now in this stage that we'll join together later in the process. Mise en place, mixing. Step three, first fermentation. This is where the added leaven... A leavening agent, either a packet of yeast that you would start or a, like a sourdough starter. Ladies, how many of you have gotten that gift from people that's a bag that you have to sit on the counter and you shake it every day and it gets real big and you let the air out? Right, it's a starter. It's a leavening agent. Step three, first fermentation. That's where these get added. So these, these yeasts, this leaven, um, or in the case of even the dinner that Christ ate, the unleavened bread, there are still naturally occurring bacteria that eat the starches and the sugars and produce carbon dioxide and alcohol. So these byproducts will be used later. So you have mise en place, mixing, first fermentation. The dough then, in step four, gets divided into smaller units because any recipe is going to yield several loaves. Step five, the pieces are shaped. These smaller pieces are shaped into braids or ropes or circles or squares or whatever. Step six, there's a rest period. It rests from 20 seconds to 20 minutes or longer, overnight sometimes. Step uh, seven is the final shape, you know, with all the kneading, and then it's finally shaped into its, uh, its, its configuration that you want it to come out of the oven as. Step eight is panning, where it's put in a pan. Step nine is the second fermentation. Fermentation process has actually continued since step three, and the leavening agents are in there, and they're producing all of these things in the bread. Step 10 is transformation. 
So once this bread in step nine has been proved to be alive, step 10, the transformation or baking. And the baking is a fascinating process chemically in the bread, which again, imagine the ancients. They didn't know any of this stuff. And so this thing had to be magic for them. This, this uh, transformation that takes place, the sugars caramelize on the crust, giving it a nice taste and that crunchy feel, you know, of fresh bread. Uh, and interestingly enough, only the crust can caramelize. The crust is sweeter than the crumb of the bread, the, in, the internal, because it's the only place that gets hot enough. Inside, the proteins start to coagulate. The gluten, the glutenin and gliadin start to coagulate together at about 160 degrees. They line up and they create structure, which is the crumb of the bread. And the starches, when they reach 180 degrees internally, they gelatinize. They thicken, they absorb the moisture around them, and they swell and burst and spill their guts, if you will, into the bread. Transformation, radical transformation in step 10. Step 11, cooling. Take the bread out of the oven. I'm sure you guys have tried the experience of, oh, man, the kitchen smells so good. I want a piece of this bread right now. And you try to cut the, you can't. It just, it'll crumble. You've got to let it cool. So step 11 is cooling. The proteins set up. They strengthen and firm. And, and step 12, um, it's kind of funny. It's called packaging, which is really just eating it. So in step 12, there's this eating of the bread. These 12 steps, 12 steps of bread. Four steps of understanding, four levels. That was the literal. That is exactly what happens when bread is there. Let's take it down a few levels. Bread. Why did Jesus choose bread? See, bread begins, has its life started as grains. Wheat, barley, rye, spelt. These are all grains. They're living plants that have seeds. And in order for us to begin the process of bread, what do we have to do? The grains. We harvest the grains. What is harvesting a euphemism for? When we say we harvest the pig, we kill it, right? We harvest these grains. These things that are alive give up their life. Now, if you're a farmer and you harvest a grain, you're going to take some of that seed and set it aside because the seed has potential for future life. There's still life there, but it's in potential. So these seeds, you set them aside, you plant those next year, up comes the grain. Well, to make bread... Bread requires total death. First, you kill the plants. Then you take even the potential for life and you grind it into this dust called flour. It's dead. It's dead. So transformation is a radical change from one thing into another thing. So we have flour. We add the salt. We add the water. And we make this clay. And then we infuse this clay with leaven. Now, again, if you're thinking, well, Jesus had a Passover meal and there was unleavened bread. And even today in the Jewish culture, there's this chametz, this principle um, where you, you cannot leaven your bread for the Passover feast by fermentation. But you can leaven it with a chemical agent, baking soda, baking powder. Uh, and again, there are these natural bacteria present in the flour that are activated by the water that even if you don't add yeast, it'll still rise. So leaven, leaven comes from this root word to enliven. This thing that was crushed and is dead is combined with these other things and becomes alive again. The leavening agent brings this clay, the bakers call clay, to life. The Hebrew word for clay is Adam, man. 
So what once was dead is now alive again. And there's enzymes that are bringing forth sugars. And the yeast is eating the sugars, turning it into carbon dioxide and alcohol. Bacteria is eating the sugar, turning it to acid. And now there's this personality and this character developed. This thing is alive. This, this dough, this lump of dough is alive. And now the piece is divided and shaped and it's raised again, proving it's alive. But we don't eat the dough. I mean, my dad eats bread dough, but he's a weirdo. So dough is not the stuff of, it's not the staff of life. Bread is the staff of life. So what do we do? We put it in the oven. When the dough in the oven passes 140 degrees, it reaches the thermal death point. TDP, uh, if you will. And these things that were alive, these enzymes, in order to complete their final process, they literally die. We talked about how that process of these things come together at that temperature and then they burst and they spill their guts and that's what caramelizes and that's what makes the bread. So first of all, you have the epoxy principle, these things that are separate, that on their own can't really do much. But man, when you get them together, it's like they're, the sum is greater than the whole of its parts. Does that sound at all like God and man coming together, dying to give its life so that we can have life? Is it a mystery that Jesus chose bread for the symbol? So let's turn to wine. Wine is going to be a little bit more complex, and you've got to focus. You've got to stay with me here because I'm going to go quickly. But if you would turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 65. So we've talked about the bread. Now we're going to talk about wine. And there's three passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 65, Joel 3, and Amos 9. And as you're turning, if you can get there, great. If not... Um, just listen and read along. So Isaiah 65, 17. God, through the prophet Isaiah, is talking about what he's going to do to restore. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping or the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days for the youth will die at the age of a hundred. And the one who does not reach the age of a hundred shall be thought accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. And they shall also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my chosen ones shall wear out the work of their hands. It's beautiful. Joel chapter 3. The book of Joel, a couple to the, to the right there, chapter 3, starting in verse 18. And it will come about in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine. And the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And the spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the entire valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all 
generations, I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. He's talking about this coming restoration, and as part of that, there's wine. Verse 18, Joel 3, verse 18, it will come about in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. Just a couple pages to the right, it's the next book, book of Amos, chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 11. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. The title of this section in Amos is the restoration of Israel. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. I will also restore the captivity of my people Israel. They will rebuild in the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. These are just three of the passages that talk about The day of the Lord in the Old Testament. This prophetic understanding that God is going to come back and make it right. This junk that we live in. How many of you, going back to that Isaiah plant, um, the Isaiah passage, have made something only to watch somebody else enjoy it? And we labor and we labor and we labor and we labor and don't get to enjoy the fruits. And, and infants who die, who live but a few days. These things, man, that, that characterize this sinful planet, this sinful world. God will make new and as part of the symbol of that, wine will flow. Fascinating. So the presence of wine in the Old Testament, let's, let's push down just a little bit, um, is that... There's this shalom idea, and and we talked about this in my, um, it's been a while, but the grace and peace sermon. Anybody remember grace and and peace to you, by the way? Um, Paul starts every epistle with grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, peace, shalom. Well, this idea is present in the Old Testament, and and it really means everything in its place. This is so deeply embedded in Hebrew culture. There's even a blessing about shalom and the wine it's called the Hagafen. And forgive me, I'm going to butcher this, but Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Melech Haolam, Bore Priah Hagafen. The translation is Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Wine is incredibly symbolic in the Old Testament, and it symbolizes peace, it symbolizes the restoration that God is bringing. Specifically, between God and man. In a contrast, earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, God uses wine as a metaphor to say, what is going on here with this nation? You know what? I'm going to cut the vine off. I'm going to cut this. There's been disobedience. As a response to disobedience, God removes the wine. So there's this incredible symbol of the wine in the Old Testament. So, Old Testament, New Testament. John chapter 2. John, the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 2, the first miracle. As you're turning to John chapter 2, John is a book of signs. 
Um, the other, this is one of the four gospels and the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were really about different things. Matthew is an appeal to the Jews saying, Hey, I want to prove the history of Christ. So here's his lineage all the way back to Adam. And Mark is this book of action. Guys, man, it's this adventure novel. I want you to understand what Jesus has done. And there's all this action in Mark and, and Luke is a, he's a facts man, just the facts, man. Sorry. None of these are really that funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. Um, just the facts, ma'am. So he, he has all these details about, uh, about the medical side of the crucifixion of Christ and the particulars of you know, names, places, facts. Well, John is a book of symbols. And so as such, we should look at the symbols listed in John with a closer eye. So uh, not only is John a book of uh, symbols, but as a Jewish writer... Jewish writers, as such, left nothing to chance. The details here in this, in this literature is really where the meat is found. The word repetitions, event placements. Anyway, so let's look at this. John chapter 2. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the, when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what I have to do, I'm sorry, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to the servants, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the head waiter, the master of the banquet. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it had came from, but the servants who did, who had drawn the water, knew. The head waiter, the master, called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poorer. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of his signs. The signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. John 2. So let's look at the context of what the wine means. In the Old Testament, there's a couple of things I want to bring out. First of all, this miracle takes place after stuff. If you look in John chapter 1, Jesus is born. He's declared the word. John the Baptist declares the way. John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus chooses his disciples. He is already at the place where he's special. He's a rabbi, you know, a person to watch. So, um... There's that part. Now, the second is the wedding feast. Now, again, in the Bible, these wedding feasts were not a 30-minute ceremony at the top of Sapphire Point, followed by an hors d'oeuvres reception. I mean, this is a party to end all parties. This is three days of feasting and dancing, some sleeping, some more feasting and dancing, a little bit more sleep, more ceremony, the party to end all parties. I mean, just look at that. I don't know about you, but I've never been to a party that has needed on the spot 120 gallons of wine. Well, and uh, if you're at that party, A, maybe you have a problem, and uh, B, can I come? So, anyway, here's where it really gets interesting. And again, John leaves nothing to chance, and I'm going to run with this. We're going to go just a couple minutes over. But the marriage language, this is also important. The marriage language. Marriage in the Old Testament was seen as this union between God and man. The first of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other God before me, sounds a lot like forsaking all others, 
which we still today use in this language. So you've got this big feast. You've got the wine, which has the symbolism. Now, if there's even more symbolism, what day does this take place on? The third day. Anything else symbolic happen on the third day of Jesus' life? There's all of these symbols. So you've got the, the, the signs of the wedding. You've got the third day. You have the wine of shalom. And uh, this is the interesting part. Does Jesus actually turn the water into wine? That's the heading of this. The miracle at Cana where Jesus changes water into wine. But where does it say in the text that Jesus dips a finger in or Jesus does something? When does the water turn into wine? Shout it out. When the servants obeyed. The real miracle is when the servants obeyed what Jesus told them to do. Does that sound familiar? So there's this wine and look at what happens. The master of the banquet is pleased. Is there... If, if I could get the ushers, the, the communion servers, to make their way forward, and Bonnie, if you would make your way up to the piano. Um, the bread and the wine. These symbols were so intentional that Christ used. When's the last time that you really thought about your participation in this ceremony? I mean, have you spent time on that lately? Okay, I'm going to sit there and, and drink. I'm going to eat the bread and I'm going to drink the cup. And have we thought about what it meant that God literally had to die and not just die, but be crushed and that his body was broken for us. And through that, we live. And this wine that we take that may be juice here or wine or cran grape somewhere else, that this symbolizes the peace, the shalom that God has for us. So as we come to the table today, have that in your hearts. And finally, if you're visiting with us you're welcome to participate in this ritual if you know Christ as your Savior. If you don't, uh, feel free to just let these things pass by. If you'd like to know more about what this means or even Jesus Christ, please talk to me after. I'd love to share that with you. So, going back to this, we're going to get started here. God, thank you. For what you did on the cross. Thank you for this ritual that we come to with the bread and the wine. Your body and blood symbolized in our hands. Please renew us, Father. Draw us close to you, to you through this. In Jesus' name.